You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. The ride out was pleasant. Golden sunlight flickered through the trees. The river gleamed. Birds sang in the branches overhead. And the lockers made good company, laughing about the tricks they played on the greenhorns in camp, telling stories of the characters they met in the far-off corners of the country, and asking the priest about his various investments in town. The mood darkened as they approached the riverbank and made their way into the trees. The world felt thin here, like a scrape on the land where nature had pulled back and retreated. Even the sun seemed paler, unable to penetrate the canopy, the black water, and the swampy forest floor. There were no birds here, either, just the sound of the distant river and the buzzing of black flies. The priest drew a holy Bible from his pack and followed in silence, trudging through the duff until he was led to a pallid pool of water. Here? he asked. One of the loggers shrugged and explained that no one knew to any degree of certainty. The men called this place Dead Boy Spring, while the area below was known as Hooper's Spring. The group reasoned that it was probably best to bless them both, to make doubly sure that the tormented spirit that haunted this place would finally be put to rest. The loggers stood quietly with their hats in hand and heads bowed as the priest opened his Bible and began to read. You're listening to Fireside Canada, my podcast about Canadian legends, lies, and lore. I'm David Williams. Tonight, we're venturing a little deeper into a famous New Brunswick legend. Last episode, you heard a number of different stories that have all been attributed, at one time or another, to a legendary and mysterious entity of the New Brunswick wilderness. If you haven't heard it, I suggest you stop here and listen to part one first, as a lot of tonight's episode is focused on explaining and exploring those stories. For everyone else, take a seat by the fire. This is part two of the Dungarvan Hooper. When word spread about the priest and his journey to the banks of the Dungarvan River, no one had to ask why. For years, anglers, hunters, and loggers who visited the area after dark would hear a blood-chilling hooping noise echoing through the trees. The storytellers were very clear on this point. It wasn't a scream, it wasn't a yell, it was, very specifically, a hoop. Some said there was an evil in those woods, a tormented spirit so powerful and so frightening that it drove loggers from their beds in the middle of the night, vowing never to return. Others said that the mysterious hoops had lured the curious and the foolhardy to their deaths with its mysterious call. Now, finally, something was to be done about the Dungarvan Hooper once and for all. A man of the cloth would be able to rid the area of evil and put the spirit to rest. At least, that was the hope. If you asked anyone in the local parish about the Hooper, most would tell you that, according to legend, the thing was once human a young cook named Ryan who met a violent and brutal end in a Dungarvan lumber camp decades earlier. The following is just one take on the story.
He was like that when I found him. Burke, the Dungarvan camp boss, didn't lift his head as he spoke. He didn't look at the others as they gathered around the body. Instead, he kept his eyes fixed on the white-tailed deer as he dragged it beside him, sweeping a path through the crusted snow that stretched from the trees to the firelight. It was only when the buck was primed for gutting that he ventured a glance at the men who circled the heap, now blue in the fading light. Some were wide-eyed and jabbering, looking over their shoulder or across the circle. Others stood motionless and solemn, their saws and axes limp at their sides, tracing gentle arcs in the snow with their feet. More approached, the circle grew, and a muttering rippled through the ranks. It's Ryan. The cook? He's dead. What? How? The kid's dead. A sharp breeze whipped at the coat and legs of Buchanan as he strode the grounds to stand with the crew. His eyes examined the faces of the men before falling to the center of their tensely stamping boots where lay the body of the young cook, supine, slightly twisted, clouded eyes snapped open and sunken, staring dully at the evergreens overhead that dipped and swayed with the wind. Soft snow sifted gently downward, dusting the pale face, pooling in the corners of the eyes and lining torn, blue lips. The mouth hung open, empty, slightly contorted, as if a moan or scream had frozen before breaching, the burst of wet breath that would carry it now ossified and icy in the lungs. Buchanan squatted, lifted the chin, and turned the head left and right, then rolled the body carefully to one side and peered beneath before easing it back in place. He stood with his hands on his hips and sighed. There were no marks on or around the body, no blood or debris, nothing to explain why death had come to the camp. It had simply come, and when it had gone, Ryan had gone with it. What happened here? He glanced through the snapping flames at Burke kneeling over the buck. Its brown fur bristled in the firelight, its legs bent and pulsing as Burke's hand slipped beneath its abdomen, sliced through muscle and pulled at entrails. What is this? His voice was labored and hoarse. When no reply was offered, he stepped quickly around the cook's body and came alongside the foreman, who wordlessly continued his labor. The big man huffed, then snatched and tugged at Burke's wrist to hoist the man to his feet, but released and pulled back when his hand slipped along the man's arm, wet and hot with blood. He looked at his red palm and spat. Burke, he breathed. What the hell is this? Burke rose. His arms were red to the elbows. A knife glinted in his right hand. The deer's esophagus, heart, and lungs glistened and steamed in his left. Supper, Burke said, then gave an exhausted laugh. He wiped the sweat from his brow with the back of his arm, smudging blood across his forehead. I know, I know, it's Friday, he said, nodding. But you won't find judgment out here. He let the entrails slip through thick fingers. Anyway, it was standing in water when I shot it. Eh, that makes it close enough to fish, I say. He grinned wide and snorted, then wrinkled his nose and sniffed. I'll tell you what I told the others. I finished my orders, came outside, and there he lay just as he is now. Burke's knife drew circles in the air as he gestured to Ryan's body. I thought he was fooling at first, or maybe slipped and hit his head. 
I went to wake him, but nothing. He shrugged and sighed. I think I heard him carrying on yesterday about how he felt sick. I don't know. It's a shame, but that don't change the fact that we've got hungry men to feed, and a cook who's lost his color. He gathered snow in his hands and scrubbed them clean. Pink and red slush streamed across his knuckles. I need help skinning this buck. He said it loud enough for the others to hear, but kept his eyes fixed on the big Irishman before him. Mr. Tool, Burke called out. Help me with this buck. You, he pointed to the big man, get Ryan clear of camp. There's a storm coming, and I want him in the ground before it hits. The men set to work. This is a sin. Frozen rain battered the mess hall roof as the loggers ate their evening meal. The man who spoke shifted in his seat and nudged a chunk of stewed meat with his spoon, then looked at the men sitting nearby. Eating meat on a Friday, I mean. It's a sin. Only if you're Catholic, one man said grinning and wiped his plate clean with a biscuit. If it is, Tool said, it's the smallest of the day. What do you mean? Tool leaned in. Where's the money? The men looked at each other. Ryan's money. Since he first came to camp, he's had that money belt. You've seen it. He never took it off. Today, he turns up dead, and the belt is gone. He motioned to another man a few seats away. Alan, you buried him. You check his things? Alan nodded. Buried was a bit of a stretch, he said. They placed him near one of the springs that was close to camp, but the ground was frozen solid. They built a fire over the gravesite, but still only managed to put about a foot of earth between Ryan and the weather. We checked before we planted him. A letter, some tobacco, no belt. Tool nodded. Nothing in his bunk, either. You helped with that deer, Alan said. Burke say anything? Tool frowned. He just kept telling over and over how he found Ryan that way, that there was nothing he could do. He peered at Burke, who was sitting at the far end of the hall. What sort of man does that, you think? Finds a man dead, doesn't call out, doesn't even prep the body, but goes hunting instead. He tore a piece of biscuit and chewed thoughtfully. He said Ryan complained of sickness. You ever hear him complain? The others shook their heads. Me neither. The cabin walls creaked and groaned in the driving wind, bursting against the flat of the building, rattling and whistling through the cracks of the door, and screaming along the rafters, making the lantern light ripple on the walls. Then, just as quick, the weather relented, and a soft stillness settled over the camp, a brief pocket of peace inside the storm. The unexpected silence struck their sharpened senses, overcome and buzzing by the turmoil outside. The elements of supper, the scraping of plates, pouring of drink, and bouts of scattered conversation all faded and froze as the men listened intently to the hush of gentle wind. Just then, a strange sound broke through the quiet depth. A single, piercing cry so fleeting that some men were unsure if they heard it at all, like a distant voice caught in hazy half-sleep. 
There was a pitch of silence, and then the sound came again, louder this time, ragged and wild on the edge of a new blast of wind and snow. Its unmistakable presence cast from the darkened expanse that hummed on the edge of the camp. And it took a sharp ear to discern its shape on the wind, and a curious tongue to lend its substance. What was that? an older man said. His face shone in streaks of hot light cast from the grate of the metal stove. The others sat motionless as they listened. There it is again. Do you hear it? I don't. Listen, just... The cry came again. There. That whooping sound. What is that? Burke rose from his chair and took a tentative step to the wall behind him. The sound came again. A windy, whooping, dreadful call, shrill and sudden and short, without warning or approach. It was an unmistakable voice, somewhat familiar and strangely human in a way, but with a wild incongruity that set the men on edge. The whooping sounded again, closer, an anguished cry of immense volume just outside the hall. The men looked at each other, and then at the door. Burke stepped forward, wringing his hands, looking from face to face of the men nearby. It's him, he said softly, then took another step. It's Ryan. The wail came again, and he shot forward, unhooked a lantern from the wall, and rushed into the night. The men jumped to their feet as the door slammed behind him. Sleet and snow pelted Burke's face as he stumbled into the storm. Shielding his eyes with one arm and pressing the lantern forward with the other, the globe and fount swaying wildly in the wind. He peered into the roiling black. Nothing. He could see nothing, sense nothing, but his own little flickering light in that yawning expanse of storm and snow and darkness. The silent faces of cabins huddled on its fringe, and the sound and smell of hard ice driving into frozen earth. Burke licked his lips and jerked left, then right, listening with a frenzied care. Then he heard it. That same terrible call stabbed at him from the trees and echoed in the air. He whirled to face it. An icy breeze slashed at his body, and each breath grew more ragged as he made his way to a ramshackle shed at the edge of the camp. He paused to listen past his own labored breathing and drumming heart to the worn, weather-beaten door creaking and slamming against the wall. He glanced inside, then shut and latched it closed. The voice whooped behind him, and Burke spun around and screamed. A figure pitched and weaved, suspended in the air, its limbs slumped and dangling toward him, white strips of bone gleaming in the dark. His lantern revealed shimmering shocks of sickly pink and red, and his eyes followed upward to see clouded black pools staring back. He recoiled and stumbled back, then caught a flash of blue rope and brown antler swinging overhead. It was the remains of the deer, now skinned and partially butchered, that he and Tool had left hanging in a tree. He wheezed a brief laugh and shook his head, then pushed forward into the trees. The terrible cry boomed overhead. He was close. Burke scrambled over wet roots and fallen trunks with blind determination, pausing only to listen and shift direction as the whooping call echoed again and again through the forest. 
The trees grew thick and wild, and their black branches scratched and clutched at his clothing. He blindly bent and twisted through the trees as they caught his shoulders and sides, until he was forced to squirm from his shirt and leave it in a tangled mess. Desperate, panicked, he wrenched forward and fell to his knees near a spring, swollen and black from the storm. He tore Ryan's money belt from his now bare waist and threw it away. A scream punched through the air, and Burke staggered to his feet and turned to face the forest. There was nothing. He stood stooped and freezing in a frayed circle of lantern light, surrounded by shimmering dark. He shivered and closed his eyes. The wailing cry sounded again, an unbearably loud screech of anguish and anger that forced Burke to drop the lantern and slam his hands to his ears. The sound came again, ripping through the night above and behind him. A shock of cold raced through his neck. The lantern flickered out. The whooping call burst through the storm, and Burke screamed. The unearthly sound didn't stop when Burke finally fell silent. It continued to echo throughout the forest just outside of camp, and the men spent a sleepless night listening to the hoops and wails of someone or something moving through the trees. The storm subsided a few hours before dawn, and the men gathered their things and fled. The camp was abandoned, and the camp boss was never seen or heard from again. The camp has all but vanished now, but the clearing remains. They say nothing ever grows there, and the few who stumble upon it won't stay very long. They're kept awake by the shrill hoops and shrieks of the Dungarvan Hooper, the tormented spirit of a murdered cook buried in a shallow forest grave. The story you just heard is inspired by what many consider to be the definitive version of the Dungarvan Hooper legend, an unfortunate camp cook named Ryan who was murdered in cold blood by the camp boss. In fact, if you approach someone from the area, from the village of Blackville, say, or the town of Renus, and ask them to tell you about the Hooper, you're almost guaranteed that they'll tell you about poor Ryan and his money belt. And it's really their story to tell. It's not the New Brunswick Hooper, after all. It's not even the Miramichi Hooper. No, the Hooper has a very specific territory, and that's the region of the Dungarvan. For those who don't live in the area, the story of a murdered camp cook who rises from his forest grave might sound like just another generic ghost story that could be set in any of the countless lumber camps that were found at one time or another throughout most of the country. But it's important to understand how strongly the legend is tied to the region and its people. The spring where Ryan was supposedly buried actually exists. Hooper Spring and Dead Boy Spring, mentioned in the cold open of this episode, are real places. With some solid directions and a decent 4x4, you can go there yourself, though there's not much to see. And then there's the story of the local Catholic priest, a sort of epilogue to the legend. Many modern tellings conclude with a nameless Catholic priest who, decades later, visited Ryan's grave in an attempt to finally put the Hooper to rest. Now that also sounds a little generic, doesn't it? It feels like a tacked-on bit of fiction, 
dreamed up to give the legend a sense of finality, but the folklore of the region assures us that he was a real person. His name, they say, was Father Edward S. Murdoch, and he was a real Catholic parish priest from the town of Renus. Some stories tell us that he put the Hooper to rest by performing a simple blessing. Others say that Father Murdoch actually performed a full exorcism. And still others tell us that he had workers unearth Ryan's remains and bring it all back to town for a proper Catholic burial. Did it work? Well, some say that it did, that Ryan's spirit was finally put to rest. But others aren't so sure. Some say the Hooper is still out there, still terrifying with its wild shrieks those who are brave enough, or foolish enough, to stray near the Dungarvan River after dark. Now, it's important to note here that the priest and his endeavors are all part of the lore, but not official history. Father Murdoch was a real person, but there doesn't seem to be any official evidence that actually connects him to the Hooper legend. No newspaper articles detail the priest's journey, and there doesn't seem to be any church record regarding a site visit, an exorcism, or the transfer of remains. Regardless, Father Murdoch's trip to Hooper Spring became an integral part of the story, which was then immortalized in song in 1912 by a schoolteacher, bookkeeper, and celebrated poet of Renus, Michael Whalen. Appropriately titled The Dungarvan Hooper, Whalen's song helped make the Hooper one of the most popular ghost stories in the province. Generations of New Brunswickers have grown up hearing the story, wondering what the hoop of the Hooper actually sounds like, and wondering, most of all, if there's any truth behind the legend. But to attempt to solve that mystery, you need to get a greater lay of the land. The legend of the Dungarvan Hooper comes from northeastern New Brunswick, in what is known as the Miramichi, a name given to the river, the region, the city, and the community. Located on the traditional lands of the Mi'kmaq nations, some say that the Hooper has been hooping it up long before any lumberjacks came to the region. It has been said that the indigenous people of the area told French voyageurs about an invisible forest spirit with an unearthly yet human voice that haunted the region and made terrifying shrieks at night. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to find a reliable source to support this claim. The area is now home to a variety of cultures, including the Mi'kmaq, as well as people primarily of English, French, Acadian, Irish, and Scottish descent. The first English-speaking settlers were predominantly fishermen, shipbuilders, and loggers, the latter two becoming especially prevalent when the Napoleonic Wars brought a huge demand for lumber to help build and support the British Navy. Even before that, in the late 1700s, thanks to the American Revolution, most of the masts found in British ships were sourced from the forests of New Brunswick. Now, ideally, your ship's mast would be built from a single trunk of a sturdy and exceptionally tall tree, and few fit that description better than the towering white pines that grew in the wet, sandy soil of the Miramichi Valley. When the Napoleonic Wars finally ended in 1815, the region saw an influx of Irish settlers, mostly unemployed workers and former soldiers and sailors who came from Cork and Belfast hoping to start a new life. They had been watching the timber ships stacked high with New Brunswick lumber sail in and out of the British ports for years. But when the machinery of war stopped and peace arrived, 
many found themselves out of work. With no land to their name and few prospects on their side of the world, they hopped aboard some of the last returning timber ships, reached the shores of a new continent, and sought out work in the mills and forests of New Brunswick, settling inland where the trees grew tallest. These Irish settlers left their mark on the community and the culture, and also on the maps. If you head south along the Miramichi River and then go west by way of a tributary called the Renous, you'll eventually hit an offshoot that winds its way through heavy forest. This is the Dungarvan River, labeled as such since at least 1832 after a town in southeast Ireland. Local legend tells us the name came from an Irish lumberjack and Dungarvan native named Mad Michael Murphy. Apparently, there was a log jam below the mouth of the river, and the loggers held what was known as a dance to jostle them free. As he danced, Murphy shouted, Come on, boys, we'll make Dungarvan shake! And the name stuck. Chances are good that it was within this predominantly Irish community around the mid-1800s that stories of the Dungarvan Hooper first began to spread. And that makes sense. As more and more settlers arrived and began to traverse the ancient forests, they would have encountered sights and sounds that defied explanation. That brings me to my next section. You can't have a hooper without some hoopin'. Whatever you think about the Dungarvan Hooper, there's one thing that pretty much everyone can agree upon. People have heard something in those woods. Something strange. Something terrifying. An unworldly, human-like sound that made their imaginations run wild. But what was it? It's no surprise that the most popular stories from the area say that the Hooper is a vengeful, wailing spirit. Being mostly of Irish descent, the majority of the region's lumberjacks must have been familiar with that famous shrieking spirit of the Emerald Isle, the Banshee. We can imagine these men hearing a blood-curdling scream in the middle of the night and thinking that it may well be the call of a tormented spirit of one of their own. Perhaps it was the victim of a grisly murder they had heard about, a cook named Ryan, a decidedly Irish surname. That brings us to the question most listeners have wondered. Was Ryan a real person? Was a young cook really murdered in a Dungarvan logging camp? Well, as you're used to hearing by now in this podcast, no one can say for sure. The camps weren't the best at keeping records and reporting crimes, but considering how an unfortunate cook shows up in multiple stories, there's a good chance that sometime, somewhere, a camp cook was murdered. And if the murder wasn't responsible for the origin of the Hooper, it became, at the very least, connected to the story. In part one, I told you a second, lesser-known story, originally shared by a woodsman from Maine, about a scaler, a Spaniard, and a cook. There are some distinct differences between this and the more popular legend. Here, we're told that the Hooper is not the ghost of a cook named Ryan, but rather the spirit of a scaler named Isaac Dungarvan, who was murdered by a rival worker, and who haunts a camp by a lake rather than a river. The way the Hooper behaves in this story is also different. While in the first story, the Hooper rises from his grave to wander the wilderness or even pursue his murderer, here he is more of a spiritual echo, doomed to repeat his final struggle on the same night every week. But there are similarities as well. 
Both take place in logging camps that are quickly abandoned by the workers and remain abandoned years later. Both attempt to explain a mysterious and terrible scream that's heard regularly in their respective regions. And, oddly, both include a murdered cook. Now, in the first story, the cook is integral. There is no Hooper without him. But in the second story, the cook seems like an afterthought. He is completely unnecessary, and any editor would have taken him out long ago for muddying the narrative because the core conflict is found between the scaler Dungarvan and the Spaniard. The cook is just a friend of Dungarvan and seems to irritate or even scare the Spaniard. Sure, he sides with Dungarvan in their regular fights and presumably winds up murdered as a result, but it's Dungarvan's voice that rings through the wilderness and Dungarvan's ghostly presence that materializes in the camp each week to eternally duke it out with his assailant. The cook is just there. This legend might be an amalgamation of two separate stories, one about a murdered cook who would go on to become the Dungarvan Hooper everyone knows today, and one about a rivalry between two scalers that happened somewhere in Maine. A side note here, the earliest version of this story that I could find was in a 1918 edition of the Boston Globe, relayed by a Mr. William Murray, who was a woodsman, gummer, and guide from Aroostook County, Maine. He tells us that he personally heard the hooper while guiding someone through the brush in October of 1852, then proceeds to share the legend that he heard from his grandfather decades earlier. His story mentions specific lumbermen, camp bosses, and workers by name, all of which give a ring of truth to the legend. But he also notes that the murder and subsequent haunting took place not by Dungarvan River, but on the shores of Dungarvan Lake in Maine's Aroostook County. The thing is, from what I can tell, there is no Dungarvan Lake in Aroostook County or anywhere else in the U.S. There is, however, a Dungarvan Lake in New Brunswick, about 80 miles from the U.S. and Canada border, 20 miles from the town of Blackville, and within walking distance of the Dungarvan River. This is likely the lake that the old woodsman was talking about. The confusion about whether the lake was located in America or Canada is understandable. The border between Aroostook County and New Brunswick was never fully solidified until 1842. All of this is to say that the lumberjacks who worked these camps moved around a lot, and they brought their stories with them. A lumber camp legend, like the urban legends of today, would have made its way from camp to camp, with each storyteller swearing that the events weren't just factual, but local as well. The murder could have occurred in a camp along the Dungarvan, but it could just as easily have happened anywhere. In short, it's likely that the whooping sound came first and the ghost came second. That covers the first two stories from part one. But what about the third? That leads us to our next section, The Devil in the Dark. Our third Hooper legend can be found, among other places, in a book titled The Lumberjacks by Donald Mackay. Mackay tells us he heard this story from a Mr. Tom Pond of Fredericton, who, in turn, heard it from the old-timers when he first went to the logging camps of New Brunswick after the First World War. This story stands out primarily for being one of the few versions that doesn't include a ghost. Here, we're told that the Dungarvan Hooper is a devil, and a very strange-looking devil at that. 
Pond describes the creature as, quote, a long brown animal with a great long tail and a round head like a man and short horns, end quote. He adds to that, rather matter-of-factly, so it was the devil. Taking giant leaps that stretch 20 feet or more, the monster reaches the opposite shore of the river and disappears into the woods, where it lets out, quote, this awful, blood-curdling screech, end quote, which Pond explains as the fellow's death hoop. So did the devil truly appear in the New Brunswick wilderness? Well, as you might expect, there is another, less spectacular explanation. Many people will hear Pond's description of the beast and immediately think of one particular animal, a cougar, also known as a mountain lion, panther, and puma. Cougars are long, often brown animals with long tails and round heads. And while they certainly don't have short horns, they do have short, pointed ears. They're also known for their terrifying, eerily human-sounding cries that can make anyone's blood run cold. The screech, it's said, is similar to a wailing child or a miserable shriek of a person in incredible pain and suffering. Today, cougars in North America tend to favor the west side of the continent, but many believe there's evidence that suggests that a now-extinct eastern cougar once roamed the forests of a number of states and provinces, including New Brunswick. Of course, the loggers wouldn't have known any of this. Remember, most of them had come from Ireland and had never even seen a forest, let alone the creatures that lurk in their shadows. And that's what makes this legend one of the most believable. It was the simple matter of mistaking a foreign creature for one of folklore. Once you know about cougars and have heard their ear-splitting shriek, it becomes pretty obvious that the hoops that were heard near the Dungarvan didn't come from a ghost or a demon, but a creature of flesh and blood. Mystery solved, right? Well, there's just one tiny little problem. People have claimed to hear the hooper to this very day, but the last confirmed sighting of an eastern cougar in New Brunswick occurred in 1939. In 2018, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service declared the creature extinct. Canada has remained silent on the topic, while others believe that the eastern cougar never existed in the first place, or at least seldom, if ever, set a paw in the province. And that just adds to the legend, doesn't it? Even the most ordinary explanation, that the Hooper is a normal, flesh-and-blood creature, is still steeped in local legend, as we learn that the most likely candidate, the Eastern Cougar, is almost as elusive, mysterious, intangible, and unprovable as the ghost of a murdered cook. While it's likely that stories of the Dungarvan Hooper being a ghost or the devil were first shared in earnest, later tales have often fallen on the lighter side of things giving the Hooper a key role in tall tales meant to entertain or mess with the uninitiated. And that brings us to our next section, From Local Legend to Tall Tale. The University of Maine has, in its archives, a number of songs once sung in the lumber camps of the region. One great example is a song collected in 1962 by Professor Sandy Ives titled The Dungarvan Hooper. It's sung by a man named Billy Price and was originally written by Billy's grandfather, Abraham Moon. Unlike Michael Whalen's song of the same name, this song isn't an origin story of the Hooper. 
The Hooper isn't even the main focus. Instead, it's more of a spoof of a ghost story, starring people who were, at one time, well-known characters in the Miramichi. The basic plot tells about a group of men who venture out to the Dungarvan River and encounter a number of creatures along the way, including, among other things, bear, kangaroo, wildcat, wolf, caribou, wolverine, porcupine, and, of course, the Dungarvan Hooper, said to be the terror of the night. The troop is forced to battle this mysterious creature until daybreak, when it's finally forced to run away, giving one long last wail as it knocks down little trees with its tail. Another example of a Hooper tall tale, and one of my personal favorites, is a story published in the Boston Globe on March 2, 1900. The story, titled In Terror of the Hooper, tells of a number of humorous close encounters, including the experience of one Henry Louis Arthurette. The story goes that, in November of 1899, Mr. Arthurette was guiding a number of sportsmen through the region when he was sent by his employers to a nearby lumber camp to borrow something called a cross hall. His journey is made perilous by such terrible beasts as the dreaded Side Hill Gouger, the dangerous Swamp Sorghum, the elusive Snow Snake, and the frightful Dungarvan Hooper the latter of which attacks our hero, but is ultimately repelled when Arthuret shrieks, quote, a text of holy writ, end quote. It's all tongue-in-cheek humor, of course, perhaps a little more obvious then than it is today. The Side Hill Gouger and Snow Snake are whimsical if somewhat forgotten fictional creatures of Canadian and American folklore. But if that didn't tip you off to the fantastical nature of the story, the mention of a cross hall might. As you might imagine, crosshall is indeed a logging term, but it isn't an object you can borrow. Rather, according to one author at the time, quote, a crosshall is a road cut opposite of a tramway upon which logs are loaded, end quote. Apparently, the bosses of different lumber camps throughout the northern U.S. and Canada love to play jokes on greenhorns and job seekers by sending them across the forest and into other camps in search of this non-existent tool. Once they arrived, the boss of that camp would immediately recognize the ruse and either send the poor soul even further afield or send him back with an 80-pound sack of iron in one hand and a 24-pound dumbbell in the other. It's clear reading any of the numerous newspaper articles from the period that, by the early 20th century, the Hooper was more of a joke than anything else. Nothing to be taken seriously. Yet, somehow, over time, the more fanciful stories of vanishing potatoes and crazy forest creatures were forgotten, and one ghost story remained. That leads me to the final part. The legend lives on. The first thing you see is a hand sinking into a cauldron, surrounded by the flames and floating embers of a fire. A forest looms in the background, partly obscured by a sickly yellow mist. Your eyes trace the open palm up along its splayed fingers to the face of a madman, glowing in the firelight, his mouth twisted into an evil snarl. He holds an axe in his right hand above his head. The blade is stained with blood. This image is part of the Haunted Canada series of stamps issued by Canada Post in celebration of the various ghost stories told throughout the country. This one in particular is meant to represent the story of the Dungarvan Hooper. 
With its bloodied axe and cooking pot, it seems to represent an alternate version of the most popular legend, where Ryan isn't just murdered, but chopped up and cooked by the camp boss, and then devoured by the unsuspecting lumberjacks. In the village of Blackville, New Brunswick, a chainsaw carving of Ryan looks out over the water from their municipal park. With one hand cupped to his open mouth and the other holding a frying pan, it serves as a folk art memorial to the unfortunate cook with a powerful voice. Ask some of the older folks about the hooper, and they'll tell you about the young cook and the murderous boss, about the ghostly hoops and the abandoned camp, and about the hero priest from Renus who finally put Ryan's spirit to rest. They may also tell you about the passenger train that used to run from Newcastle to Fredericton. On quiet nights, they say, you could hear the train's mournful call echoing throughout the valley. The train was known locally as the Dungarvan Hooper in honor of the legend. Others might direct you to a book of New Brunswick legends or tales of the Miramichi. Some might even swear they've heard the Hooper or know someone who has. Whatever you believe about the Dungarvan Hooper, it can't be denied that its presence is still felt over a century later tied as it is to the land and the people and the animals that live there. Legend tells us that Father Murdoch put Ryan's wailing spirit to rest sometime in the 1910s, two decades before the last eastern cougar was spotted in the area, and the Hooper train hasn't run since the 1960s. But every now and then, someone will swear that they heard the Hooper's cry somewhere in the darkness along the Dungarvan River. The more practically-minded will tell you it's an owl, a juvenile, most likely, that is responsible for the bone-chilling hoops that they hear. But others aren't so sure. To some, the ghost of Ryan still haunts the wilderness that surrounds his shallow grave. I think there's no better way to end an episode about the Dungarvan Hooper than with the closing lines of Michael Whalen's famous poem. Be this story false or true, I have told it unto you, as I heard it from the folklore all life long. So I hope all strife will cease, and our people dwell in peace, where the dark and deep Dungarvan sweeps along. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening, and for joining me in becoming part of a Canadian folk tradition. Now that you know the story, share it. And remember... Next time you're away from home, keep your money belt tucked somewhere out of sight, just to be safe. Fireside Canada is written and recorded by me, David Williams. Sound design and mixing is by Ryan Clark. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving this podcast a positive review. If you want to help even further, you can support me through my website, Every little bit helps to keep the fire burning and the library of legends growing. Learn more at firesidecanada.ca.